bad boy. Arnegeddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we have a special guest this week here to help us take back Gotham City, Tyler Orton. Thanks for letting me chill here, Cam. <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> we are here this week to talk about Batman and Robin, a movie that I think, boy, we've been putting it off doing it for a while now. And Tyler, it sounds like you're urinating right now. <laughs> But thank you. Yeah. The effect is, you know, reminding me of the venom flowing through uh, Bane's veins. Yeah. So, do, you know, let's tie it all back to this wonderful movie. Do Flo- the, do flowing man. through. <laughs> yeah, flowing through. Yeah, sure. Bane's veins. Um, so, Batman and Robin is a notorious movie. It's one we've put off doing, I think, for a long time. Right, Tony? Uh, yeah, for about 22 episodes now, I think. Yeah, it was one we never... We want to do it right, I think. Like, it's one you could just toss off and just make fun of for an hour, but we want to do kind of something special. So we decided to do a crossover with the Subspace Transmission Star Trek podcast, which you've been a guest on before. And Tyler, you co-host with me. Yeah, no, it's a total honor. This is one, when you guys told me you were launching an Arnie Geddon podcast, I was like, I beg you, please let me guest on... On collateral damage. On collateral damage. You said, (laughs) no, it is too sacred. But, you know, you gave me this as the kind of uh, the, the runner-up sort of prize, and I am so, so excited. It was either this or, I, I swear to God, Jingle All the Way. That Those are the two Arnold Schwarzenegger movies that I wanted to do. Right. Well, it was uh, a very sad Christmas for you, the fact that we did not when, invite you on for that one. When I saw that go up on my feed and I never got the invite, I, I it was a very sad Boxing Day for me, I, I'm afraid. <laughs> Although, you know, I think uh, we, we recently recorded Jingle All the Way and we realized that, uh, you know... Uh, I don't know if the world really needed an hour and a half long podcast of Jingle. <laughs> that was longer than the movie. <laughs> I mean, that'll turn a ninety-minute bus ride that much longer, realistically. All, all I want is some figgy pudding. <laughs> so let's dive into Batman and Robin. You're gonna have to talk to Sinbad about that. <laughs> a movie that lives in infamy. I am curious. Let's start with Tyler. I want to know two things. Do you remember the first time you saw this movie? And second of all, how many times have you seen it? So I think this is my third time. Okay. And to answer your first question, second, mm-hmm. uh, I absolutely 100% remember the first time that I saw this. My sister and I, I cannot tell you how like beyond belief we were to go to the theaters together <laughs> and see this. <laughs> and I say is about a, the six-minute mark right? where, you know, these, um, I don't know, I think we we're like 13, 14. We kind of looked at each other in movie theater, <laughs> and we knew we were in trouble. But... Uh, my sister and I, it was one of those weird experiences at the movie theater where we didn't really know what to make out of it other than, like, it was not what we were expecting, uh, especially right. after coming off the Vale Kilmer Batman Forever film. Um, so I, I'm just dying to talk about my experience, you know, oh God, like, what, 20, 25 years later? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, I remember they scored all the trailers to the um, to the Tim Burton Batman music, the Danny Elfman theme. Right. And so every time they would trick you with these Schumacher movies. <laughs> Isn't music manipulative, guys? Oh, yeah, big like, time. I mean, I know you're a big fan of Billy Corgan, uh, Tony. And... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what got me to see Watchmen. They, 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 you know, they scored the Watchmen trailer to uh, the Billy Corgan 
end credits song. I believe yeah. it's called The Beginning is the End, I think. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, How clever. Well, true enough. Now, Tony. Hey, won a Grammy. <laughs> that's true. Do you remember seeing this movie in the, the first time? Uh, I remember my experience seeing this movie the first time, but I don't actually remember the like the date. Right. You know, I, I'd have to go back and check my dream journal. Uh, <laughs> I remember my experience watching it, and which was, uh, this movie sucks. Right. Uh, I remember thinking, uh, I think it was probably at the same six minute mark that you were at mm. um which which we could probably get into in a bit and um thinking oh like this is going to be a long 90 minutes mm-hmm. yeah uh, especially since this was uh, actually 120 minutes so yeah it turns out it was uh <laughs> it was a, th- a third again long 90 minutes <laughs> yes <laughs> but i think i've seen it since then but never in one full swoop it's right. always the, it's like the kind of movie you pass out in front of when you're in a hotel room by accident. It's on right? TBS, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Cam? When did you see this movie? Okay, so for me, I have a bit of a story here because I remember for Batman Forever, the first Schumacher movie, I was beyond excited. Like, I don't think I've ever made... Batman maybe... Beyond Excited? <laughs> Batman Beyond Excited. I don't know that I was ever more excited for a movie in my life. Because really? Because I had been absolutely in love with the two Tim Burton movies. Like, I was absolutely over the, you know, over the moon for those movies. And so when Batman Forever was coming out, I was, like, obsessing over every little bit of, you know, information I could find in the newspaper. I created my own, um, like, uh, video. You know the movie guides they would hand out in the theater? Like, the programs. Yeah, like I made, Tribune? Was that yes. the one in Canada? <laughs> I made my own Batman Forever program. I also had a t-shirt made with the poster art <laughs> on it that I wore opening night to that movie. Wow. And I walked out crushed. And how old were you, Cam? Because you're, what, 58 now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I guess, what, so, 14 at the time. And I walked out and I was just like almost like shell-shocked. I don't think I understood at the time the difference, you know, a director switch would make going Tim Burton to Schumacher. And I walked out just like... Like, what was that? That wasn't at all what I wanted, and I just hated it. And I was so excited because Jim Carrey was in it, of course, and everything just fell flat for me. And so I was, like, really, really, really anti-Batman and Robin. The rest of the world went nuts over Batman Forever. Oh, and... I, I was among yeah. that group. And you know, you have a few years on me, not that mm-hmm. many, but I, I was at the right age where it was the Jim Carrey factor. And yeah. I just – and. Honestly, I really love Val Kilmer as Bruce Wayne uh, for a long, long period of time. Right, yeah. Um, and so, like, I was not looking forward to this movie at all. And I remember um, I wound up going with a friend of ours, uh, Mark Carter, who was on our Predator episode. Mm-hmm. And um, we kind of went more just because we were bored. We were teenagers. We were like, well, let's just go see this thing and see how bad it is. You didn't do a... Uh... Batman and Robin Tribune <laughs> preview no, magazine. There was no program I made for that one. Um, but I remember we went and I actually liked it more than Batman Forever in as much as like it was committed to the insanity and it didn't bore me as much as Forever. And it was just like, well, this is really, really stupid. Like, I, th- I think it's a terrible movie, but we just kind of like we would ridicule that movie for a couple years. Well, don't don't give it all away in one shot there, Cam. We yeah. got a long podcast Well, ahead that's of us. true. And um, but you asked how many times or I asked, you know, off the top how many times we'd yeah. seen it. Yeah. And uh I've probably seen it I'm going to say up to maybe 10 times. You're okay. kidding. No, I am 100% serious. You've I've... probably seen it more than Joel Schumacher has. The sad thing is as <laughs> based mu- on the editing. <laughs> <laughs> the sad thing is as much as I do not like the two Schumacher Batman movies, I keep giving them another chance because I'll go and watch the Tim Burton ones and then be like, 
you know, let, let's just give those other two another chance. And I've done it over and over. It's insanity. I, I think that literally is the definition of insanity, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> if you keep true. doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, you, you know, you belong in Arkham Asylum. Tony, Tony that's literally true. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a bit about the box office because 1997 was a pretty big year. This movie comes out. It was predicted to be one of the biggest hits of the summer lost world was coming out that same year and they were like okay which one's going to be the bigger hit and but there was some movie about a boat or something wasn't there well that was for the year not for the summer and so this one i heard somebody else died by freezing in that one <laughs> <laughs> don't let go jack yeah i kind of um, i, I kind of wish uh you know jack had been given a good uh one-liner to send him off <laughs> and weren't there precious emeralds or, or jewels involved there in were the, this one the heart of the ocean yeah pretty much the going. same movie <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> anyways but yes yeah, so this movie was insanely expensive it cost 125 million and the previous one batman forever had actually rebounded returns had not done anywhere near as well as the original and forever actually outgrossed returns it made 184 million domestic and so they were like well hold on we've got something again batman and robin is going to be a surefire thing sink every bit of money we have into this thing and yeah as i said cost 125 million and wound up grossing 107 million so it was definitely a dud uh, 107 million though in 1997 isn't bad doesn't that translate into like just a hair under 200 million nowadays pretty much yeah yeah, yeah. i could have sworn this movie was profitable though it wasn't a, it wasn't a loser was it i think it did lose initially yeah with uh, advertising well, costs and all that so is that 107 just domestic north yeah. america yeah so then i wonder if you it was 130 about... foreign so yeah add that together i don't think the movie probably lost any money yeah probably didn't lose a lot but i mean i don't but know how much it... i spent print and advertising and all that sort of stuff yeah the, but what, what's the rule like pretty much double the budget double the budget so this movie yeah. maybe made a million dollars profit not <laughs> not great for uh what is warner brothers right yeah 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 and that pretty much killed the franchise. But um, I don't know if tell it was, that to Christopher Nolan. <laughs> I don't know if it was the gross so much as the uh, reception that killed oh, the franchise. I don't know. I think if it made as much money as Forever, they would have gotten you know another one out. And I'll talk about what was going to be Schumacher's third movie later near the end of the show. But yeah, for the year it was the twelfth place for 1997. But if you look at the top ten, there's some really really big hits here. So you had Titanic at number one, obviously with never, 601 million dollars. Never heard of it. And then followed by Men in Black, Lost World, Jurassic Park, Liar Liar, Air Force One, As Good As It Gets, Goodwill Hunting, Star Wars, Special Edition, My Best Friend's Wedding, and Tomorrow Never Dies. I'm just curious, out of those 10 that uh, were just listed, what are your favorite films out of that list there, Tony and, and Cam? I'm curious from your perspective as well. Because I, I don't think um, Batman and Robin uh, is making maybe your top 10 of 1997. No. Titanic, I'm a big fan of. Okay. And Tomorrow Never Dies, I mean, I'm a big Bond guy, so definitely that one. Well, really, except for Liar Liar, which I didn't really like, I think I liked most of those uh, Yeah. And maybe my best friends. Wedding. That was a fun movie. I saw it. But uh, yeah. you know, that's a that's a pretty decent top ten. Now, now, don't do this to us, Cam. You've given us the top ten and told me it's yeah. number twelve. Do you have number eleven on your on your cheat sheet? Yes. Okay. So it was one spot above Scream Two, which was like a big hit. Cru but, that was Cruise Control, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I've got some movies that Batman and Robin actually did better than. It did better than Speed Two, Cruise Control. It did better than Alien Resurrection, another fourth entry in a franchise, uh -huh. which was way down at number 43. You also had Home Alone 3 at number 69. And then for superheroes that year, you know, this was actually the top grossing superhero movie of the year. 
in time where there wasn't that many superheroes. But you had Spawn at number 34. You had Turbo, a Power Rangers movie, at number 124. And at number 137, you had Call the Conqueror. I think I was responsible for most of the box office Yeah, Call the Conqueror. So Batman and Robin killed the Batman franchise, and Call the Conqueror killed Kevin Sorbo's career. Correct. Uh, can I tell you a little story about Cole? Yeah, um, go for it. That movie came out on my birthday, August 29th, right. 1997, uh, 13th birthday for Tyler. And I debated for a long time if that should be my birthday celebration, <laughs> going to see Call the Conqueror. <laughs> I uh, inevitably uh, declined, and uh, we went to, like, it was like this arcade slash go-kart uh, area. That... So you, what you're saying is you were part of the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Sorbo, sore, No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> so this is ultimately the ninth highest grossing Batman movie and the sixth highest grosser for Arnold, which is interesting because it was considered such a failure. But Arnold, I've really learned doing this podcast over time. I don't know about you, Tony, but you begin to realize that while Arnold was a megastar, he wasn't the highest grossing guy around. Like, I thought he was dominating all box office. And it's not really the case. It was mostly Whoopi Goldberg during this area. Sister Act probably did better than yeah. a lot of the Arnold movies. Yeah, yeah probably. Probably. Ghost. Um, yeah, Ghost was a yeah, mega hit. Mega yeah. hit for sure. Yeah. It's like, Jumping Jack Clash. Yeah, well, maybe not that one. But you remove movies like <laughs> True Lies. Theodore Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not that. Same year, though, as uh, Batman and Robin. I know. I, I yeah. saw that. <laughs> Join us for Whoopi Geddon next week. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopi Geddon. <laughs> so let's get to Batman and Robin this time. It's been... Not that long for me, but for you guys, it's maybe been a little more time. Yeah. Tyler, what was it like revisiting Batman and Robin? It was amazing. Like, I, <laughs> I, I swear to God, I think there's something magical about this uh, film. And because it's been so long, I've been able to step away from it. It is just fantastic to see how out there, how they were just yeah. kind of shooting for the stars. What if this film had been embraced? I think that this would have gone down as one of the most groundbreaking films of all time. <laughs> and that <laughs> Schumacher was just going for it. Yeah. Though. And I have to say, I, I was looking at the production values. They hold up like almost 25 years Some later. Some of it's gaudy looking, but there's other parts of it that I think are actually pretty amazing. The, look, the very fact that they rely so much on, say, the practical stuff versus mm -hmm. like – and this is right before the – the CG stuff just kind of took over Hollywood and yeah. everything looked like garbage all of a sudden. There is some terrible CG in this movie, though. There's some stuff. <laughs> like, look, the vines made me laugh. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, there was even moments, you know, remember when the Matmobile and the Robin's egg, whatever you want to call it, were, uh, right. were winding down the giant arm of the observatory? Yeah. I mean, you could tell it's CG, but, like, for 1997, I was like, this is actually holding up better than that's a lot a of CG you That's a pretty nowadays. good price. I mean, that's probably about what they paid for some of the effects in this movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, I have to say... I, $19.97. <laughs> 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 I, I was not bored at all right. watching this. Every in even the opening action sequence, like, as just out of this world and insane as it was, yeah. I was fully engaged. I was kind of sucked into it. I had a hell of a time watching this one. I'm not going to come here and say that this is like the greatest movie in 1997. I'm going to give that to you, uh, Goodwill Hunting. I, I, I really <laughs> love that. Uh, that's how much I love them apples. But uh, that's my experience watching that for, I guess, my third time. I've had a big enough break where I'm not as invested in it anymore. Right. Now, Tony, how about you? Um, I've tried to do it before, so I won't because it shows up poorly on the podcast with the mics that we use. But um, doing that game show, You're Wrong sound 
Okay. Uh, I wish I could do that right now. Just <laughs> this movie sucks. Okay. Uh, like uh, my my gut feeling when I went to see it the first time, it was correct. This is this movie is. Uh, I found it holds up as being quite horrible. I'll agree with you that Schumacher is really going for it, mm-hmm. and um, it wasn't boring. I'll give him that. <laughs> Were you at least entertained? It was entertaining, but it was more, um, you know, laughing at bizarre uh, framing shots, uh, poor editing, um, special effects that I thought were, um, while sometimes all right, for the most part, uh, you know, looked like they belonged in a community theater. (laughs) (laughs) I just have the sense, though, like if audiences embraced this, I think it would have been looked upon as just pure unadulterated genius uh but the very fact is <laughs> i think you're literally putting the cart I'm, before I'm, the horse i think if this was it, unadulterated genius audiences would have embraced I, I, it. all uh, i'm picturing right but, now is the scarecrow gassing all the water in the in batman begins and like the whole audiences are just deliriously like uh, 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 uh. I, batman batman i i'm not saying i think this is a good movie. Yeah. I don't think it was genius at all, but I want to praise Joel Schumacher for just going for it because what would the alternative been? I think if he tried to tone it down, it would have been pretty boring. It, like it would have been like just insufferable to watch. This mm-hmm. this was not a, a tough movie to watch. I, I loved every moment of watching it just because I could like I, I was engaged and I could Let's be honest, guys. You heard me. I was, I was next to you. I was laughing my ass off, though. Well, if you want, like, really weirdo moments, you often sit through movies praying for one. One moment that feels kind yeah. of off the cuff or strange. This movie's full of them. Yeah. And, like, it is pure, unfiltered Schumacher. And I think that's maybe a reason I kind of fall more on the side of this one than Forever. I feel like Forever, he had a little more studio interference. They're like, hey, the Tim Burton movies are super popular. We want to keep some of that tone. And so you kind of have this uneasy kind of relationship in the first one with these very weird, dark scenes of Val Kilmer imagining red books that his father kept and just like, what is a man? What is a bat? Can I ever be happy? You know, that sort of stuff that just it feels really melodramatic and slow mixed in with Jim Carrey going absolutely nuts as the Riddler. Whereas I feel like this one. What about Tommy Lee Jones, though? Who's terrible. There's an amazing, actually, moment in the documentary on the making of that movie on the Blu-ray um, where it's like you can tell how likable Joel Schumacher is. There's a scene where he's, you know, talking to the camera and Tommy Lee Jones comes by, I think, just to ask a question. And he's like hugging Tommy Lee Jones and Tommy Lee Jones is actually taking it. And Tommy Lee Jones does not strike me as a man yeah. who puts up with hugs very easily. Well, one half of him does. <laughs> <laughs> But so, like, this the, the one... Drew Barrymore half. <laughs> that's right. The home fries. That's, that's sugar. <laughs> home fries. <laughs> is that also from 97? No, it's 98, I think. But, um, yeah, so, like, I watched this movie, and I really do enjoy that they the studio was just like, Schumacher, do your thing. And that's kind of what they did as well with Tim Burton. The first Batman is somewhat grounded in kind of kind of blockbusters of the era, the way that studios made them. Whereas uh, Batman Returns is not. It's totally a Tim Burton movie. And that's what this feels like. It's like, this is a Schumacher movie. Okay, so Cam, you threw the question at Tony and I. Mm-hmm. What's your feeling about this movie? Because, I, I, I mean, I you've had you know fewer gaps between yeah. viewings. But I, I, since it's been like 22 years at this point, 
What is your feeling right now yeah, in the we've, film? We've got one thumb up and one thumb down. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and so it's up to you, Julius. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I still stand by this movie doesn't work. And I think what bugs me about it is it is a complete remake of Batman Forever. Like, you know, it's more campy and out there than that movie. But you can line up scene for scene almost. It is a complete remake of that movie. It also rips off whole sections of Batman Returns, the whole Catwoman stuff with uh, Poison Ivy. It's the whole origin story is almost the exact same. It just feels like it's ripping off a lot of the best elements of the for, of the franchise. But in yeah. terms of its craziness, John, John Glover versus Christopher Walken, like who do you think their scenes are the same? Yeah. It's like they're kind of harassing their employee. They shove them to their quote unquote death. They are reborn with animals on top of them, and you know, again, it's like then they you know end up killing their employer with a deadly kiss. But is Max Shrek or the Floronic Man a better villain? <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, good poll. Don't you guys love reliving toxic masculinity from the 1990s? It, yeah. It's something to behold. Yeah. But this movie is, to me, it's I entertaining. I don't rejection well. <laughs> you have to die. I'm like, good God. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, sorry. they didn't have the, like, the sexual overtones with Max Shrek and Selena Kyle as much. It was more just like like workplace harassment is in he's a terrible jerk boss who's awful to his employees yeah whereas this one gets uncomfortable maybe yeah. dr woodrue and max shrek will be in the next gillette commercial yeah <laughs> it also creates a very problematic movie where you have poison ivy's character born out of like being a victim yeah. of abuse and then she becomes quote unquote empowered sort of female character who's then treated really terribly in the end well, again sh she's uh, slut shamed by yes. batgirl at the end yes it's like okay yes a very problematic 1990s very problematic. But, sort of era. But yeah, this movie is just, it's all over the place, but I find it so watchable, which I, so I guess I agree with you, Tyler, in the sense that like, I, you know, have seen this movie many times. I could totally watch it again. It's just, so it's I, not good I, though. I just want to be clear on what uh, you two find watchable. For example, if a uh, Iceman freezes a plastic dinosaur in a museum <laughs> And then uh, a man in a bat suit who's obviously in a wire harness slides down that dinosaur and then uh, unconvincingly jumps onto another platform. That's what you guys would call watchable cinema. Well, you know, you bring up that opening. That's a good place to start because I do think that opening sets the entire tone of the entire movie. And I'm in total agreement with you. <laughs> no, that's why I said the six minute mark is when my sister and I in 1997 yep. looked at each other. It, it was the moment where they clicked their heels together and yep. the ice skates came out of their boots. That's when we knew, oh, this is not the movie that we're expecting. You were still sold when Batman was surfing the dinosaur, though. Oh, obviously. <laughs> yeah. To me, that was a highlight of the movie because uh, we're uh, still anticipating uh, Jurassic World. Yeah. Well, I, or, you, sorry, uh, uh, Lost World. Right. <laughs> so, you know what? I think I think uh, the ice skates. That was when I kind of drew a hesitant breath inward as a young man, mm -hmm. and where I l let it go defeatedly was when they uh, rode the doors of the uh, ice spaceship and uh, yeah. landed on the roof with. <laughs> I mean, basically fell from 20,000 feet with no apparent damage. And I realized this was a movie that was going to have absolutely no suspense or impact whatsoever. Well, the laws of physics clearly do not exist in this universe. No, you see off that whole opening, there's yeah. scenes where like Batman and Robin are just like flying through the air off of nothing. Yeah. And it's just like, sure thing. There's a part where like 
you know, Mr. He's Freeze. He's a bird boy. <laughs> you see a, a moment where Mr. Freeze's gun gets like knocked in the air, and the way it lands on top of that like pillar or whatever is so strange. I mean, lands or like floats through like a yeah. magnet or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's all these weird moments of people just obviously on wires. Like this is before the wire foo craze that would come around a couple years later. And yet it feels ahead of its time in that regard. This is like a Joel Cirque du Soleil dis- or like show. Ang Lee directed this one. No kidding. Yeah. No kidding. And I would be curious now to kind of go back and just briefly watch some of the fight scenes in Batman Forever and see if they were as wire foo-ish as this. I don't think they were. I don't think they were at all. You don't think so? No, I mean, you look at the, I mean, the first Batman and then Batman Returns, and mm-hmm. there, there was some pretty serious, like, high-impact uh, action scenes in those mo- movies where you were like, yeah. oh, I would not want to be a uh, mugger number two in the cast when, uh, when you know, Batman threw a fist into my chest. Well, it's like with those Batman movies, they knew the limitations of the suit, so they would just shoot high-impact shots of him punching someone out or, you know, suspending them from the ceiling by the rope. Cool moments like that to work around the fact Michael Keaton couldn't move. Whereas, like, I feel like at this point they had suits that actually were mobile enough that they could get stuntmen in and get them to do things. And that's when it went haywire. I don't know if, it, I don't know if it's a haywire. to the wires again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> but, you know, right off the bat, you know, you've got the latest villain, Mr. Freeze. And I think the movie establishes exactly what it is and that it is trying to do that 1960s style. I don't want to say the Adam West TV show, but the the comics, which were very odd at that time, which definitely there'd been all this uh, fear over the um, you know concerns over comics polluting children's minds, and so Batman in particular took a real hit. You know he'd kind of gone sci-fi in the fifties, and then in the sixties the comics just got really crazy, where weird things were happening. Just taking bath salts all the time, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Bath salts. And so like you have this this opening where like Batman is like you know in his car. And the, the screen pops up and it's like, Commissioner Gordon, he's like, Batman, we've got a new villain in town. <laughs> and it's like, that tells you everything you need to know about this movie. Well, I don't know if it tells you everything you need to know about this movie. Uh, there's a few there's a few other things, um, which <laughs> we're going to get to, I'm sure. Okay. But like for you, does that not sell the entire movie as kind of a Saturday morning cartoon? Yeah, for sure. It's it's definitely going for a high camp factor, but it's pretty hard to be campy on a $125 million budget. It's true. I mean, I think, if anything, that's where the movie um, falls flat. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's like, it is like watching a cartoon, but not a particularly good one. I mean, some of those Saturday morning cartoons, what appealed to them was, uh, you know, there was a lack of gravity. The coyote falls for nine, whatever, nine point whatever seconds, and then... Uh, hits the ground in a puff of smoke. Yeah. Uh, the Adam West Batman, you know, they've got uh, campy tools and funny lines. The lines are actually really funny on that show. It's a very well-written show. What about the lines in this one, guys? Well, that's the thing. It's like the lines in this are horrific. Like, don't you think, like, you could have come up with these lines when you're in fourth grade? Yes. And this yeah. movie was written by Akiva Goldsman, who got his start with Joel Schumacher on movies like uh, The Client and A Time to Kill. And he did Batman Forever as well. He co-wrote that one. And then he would stick with Schumacher for this. And um, he's gone on to be actually quite important. Tyler, we cover him a lot on the Star Trek podcast we do. Because he is uh, attached to the Star Trek Discovery, which is on the air, as well as the Picard show that's coming up. Akiva Goldsman has his like finger in a lot of pies throughout a lot of like various major projects in Hollywood. He's won an Oscar for A Beautiful Mind. 
but this is one of his earlier efforts with Joel Schumacher. Do you know, I, I have to just justify, like, he's told, you know, go nuts. Just go for it. And I would imagine Joel Schumacher's giving him a lot of notes as to what he wants to do. Yeah, and I think Joel Schumacher, and, and I hate to use the word camp, I think it's misused a lot, but I think the intention here, 100% camp, though, and I think that's what Akiva Goldsman was going for. No, I agree. And I do wonder, the studio must have been baffled when they're looking at this movie. I just have a hard time believing a room full of execs are watching footage from this movie, like seeing, you know, Poison Ivy do like a sexy dance in a, a gorilla costume and being like, yeah, yeah, we're with you so far. They must have just been like, I mean, the last one worked, so th this guy seems to know something. I don't know if the studio execs are thinking that. I think what they're thinking is you got Joel Schumacher, who's a mm -hmm. fairly well-regarded director. You've got Kiva Goldsman, who's uh, you know a, a, a decent writer. Uh, it's a Schwarzenegger starring vehicle, that guy from ER, whatever yeah. his name is. Uh, George Clooney, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny that he was like the smallest star in this in this yeah. movie at the time, yeah. really. Uma yeah, Thurman. Val, Val Kilmer wasn't in this <laughs> <No>. one now. <laughs> Uma Thurman, uh, Chris O'Donnell, and a, you know, a bunch of uh, you know supermodels thrown in just for mm -hmm. good measure. Elle McPherson and uh, Vandella yep. uh, are in there. I hope I'm saying your name right, Vandella. <laughs> <laughs> she listened to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you got to wonder, like, uh, a lot of those people brought their own people in. You know, mm -hmm. Schwarzenegger brought in his own uh, uh, makeup guy. Uh, they had Dykstra doing the, the special effects. Um, I mean, this... Dykstra, of course, did, like, Spider-Man 2 and things like that. He's done won Oscars for several yeah. major movies. Yeah, so you have so much talent in this movie. Mm -hmm. And it looks so good on paper that I I'm pretty sure if you're a uh, Warner Brothers executive, you're just, uh, you know... You've already got your uh, your Ferrari purchased. That money right. spent. Uh, you think this is going to be a billion dollar film? Well, I wonder if any of that even mattered. Like what they were seeing on screen. I, I think the only reason it mattered to them, and they were thinking like, yeah, I can develop like a toy line based on this or that. Mm -hmm. I think they were thinking more of along the licensing. I think in you their... are bang on. Okay, okay. Yeah. But I mean, in their heads, you know what they they figured the box office is probably in the can already, just based on what Batman Forever did. Yeah. I don't think they were thinking too much about the quality of this. I think they were looking at more of the surface level stuff that they could market. And I think this is actually a well marketed film. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember being extremely excited for it at the time. I don't, I don't know about the opening weekend box office, but I, I can't imagine it was like a dud out of the gate. I, I have to imagine it's more like a uh, a steep fall off the cliff right. following that. Well, I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, it, it did open well, unless, Cam, you got the numbers there. You, no, go you ahead. used the box office guy. I don't know what it did on its first on its first weekend, but I know that on its second weekend it had a 63% decline. Wow. Which wow. in those days was like unheard of now it's actually pretty normal yeah comic book movies traditionally open huge nowadays and just go off the cliff the second week it's all about what you make the first week but that was not the case then but you referenced the licensing and that is a actually major element of this movie and that joel schumacher has in the years since talked a lot about the development of this movie and he said he learned a word on this project that he had never heard before and that's the word toyetic and he said he was told constantly this movie needs to be more toyetic in the sense that it would spawn toys. And that was a big part of it. So he actually had the toy manufacturers involved with the development of the movie. And so that's why you have like Batman and, uh, you know, Robin and Batgirl changing costumes midway through, you know, the final fight and these vehicles that show up for brief amounts of time. It was how do we just engineer more sales off toys off this movie? Because I believe with Batman Forever, 
because Batman Returns had been so polarizing with parents groups and everything that it didn't do the merchandising they really wanted it to. Mm-hmm. It's, so pretty, they, it's pretty tough to give an eight-year-old a psychotic clown <laughs> for Christmas. Right, yes. And so when they did Forever, they actually pulled back a bit on the merchandise because they were just like, well, the last one didn't do great. And then they were selling stuff off the shelves like crazy. And so this one, they were like, this is it. This is going to be the bonanza. Load those shelves with Mr. Freeze's, you know, ice tank. Do you guys recall if there's like a Where's Ray problem back in the day with regards to this? Uh, just because, like, as you mentioned, like they were giving uh, Batgirl a whole bunch of different outfits. Mm. Were they really marketing, say, Poison Ivy and Alicia Silverstone on the shelves of, say, Toys R Us at the time? I- I'm very curious about that because I think about how many different like outfit changes Poison Ivy had. And yeah. They're very awesome outfits. There's only really one that I remember being marketed. And I think it was actually like some white outfit that I don't even recall appearing in this film when we just watched it it wasn't the weird uh, sasquatch monkey suit <laughs> i uh, i mean that's how i dressed up for halloween that year but yeah no i recall very strongly uh batman and robin figures yeah. in various versions and you know the bat bike and you know the, the robin bike and all that sort of stuff i remember a lot of mr freeze toys maybe a bean toy I do not yeah. remember batgirl or poison ivy stuff and i wonder if maybe they were selling those in like girls toys and I just wasn't in those aisles. I don't know. Like, I don't know if they were marketing this movie to young girls. I like how you're trying to claim that you weren't in those <laughs> well, aisles. I, I also <laughs> wasn't buying action figures at this point in my life, so it's very hard for me to say. That really. didn't come till later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting in that, you know, a lot of time you hear now, it's all just built into the movie. The fact we have to merchandise all this. But it, at this point in time, that wasn't necessarily the case. And this movie really marked a turning point there. Yeah. And Joel Schumacher has said since, like, he really does blame that for kind of ruining the movie, he feels. But he does say, I take complete responsibility. I'm the one that agreed to all this. And so, you know. But to me, I mean, I watch this, and I feel like this is kind of a Joel Schumacher film. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think this is just such a distinct-looking movie that you can't do what he did without having this kind of actorship yeah. sort of command over everything that happened. Otherwise, I think the movie... This movie wasn't hard to follow, like no. whether it's you know the direction or the editing. I I, I thought it's like bat shit crazy. In, unless you're an epileptic. Well, <laughs> yeah. Which uh, well, it's funny you bring that up because Cam and I both have epileptic conditions. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's not a joke, uh, listeners. That's why we enjoy this movie so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You must have blacked out for an hour of it or so. <laughs> but yeah. every time they went in the bat cave and the strobes were flashing everywhere, <laughs> that was bizarre. Yeah. I, I'm just curious. So I mean, of course, this is an Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast. What did you two think of Arnie in this movie? Because I'm, I'm looking at that makeup, and I'm like, that takes guts, man. Like, that takes a whole lot of commitment to this role, which you're getting paid quite mightily for, I, I have to say. Yeah, Tony, what do you think? Well, I mean, you are correct. It is an Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast. What did I think of Arnold? Well... <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what you're usually the really kind one in this podcast. Uh, am I? Usually. I'm the one that tends to be a little harsher on these things. Well, let's put it this way. And I'll say this for most of the people involved in this. That's not true. I'll say this for some of the people involved in this film. They weren't that bad. Um, you know, it's one of they those, were committed. It's one of those films. Yeah, I mean, Pat Schwarz- Hinkley. <laughs> yeah. Pat Hinkle, yeah. Pat Hinkle, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things like Schwarzenegger was he was clearly committed. You got to give him props for doing that, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, I mean, he was 
absolutely manic and over the top. Not willing uh, to shave his head, though. Not willing to shave his head. He was wearing a bald cap <laughs> yeah. for uh, for the film. But um, the the lines that he was given to deliver and the script that he was given to read ha- have got to be up there with one of the worst collections of one-liners I've ever seen in a film. I was I was keeping track. I was actually mm-hmm. keeping account this oh, wow. time along. And I counted um, amongst all of his lines, uh, no fewer than 23 one-liners about ice, snow, or cold. Right. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. You know, and it's it is pretty hard to not come across as a bit of a a bit of a drag when in 120 minutes you're saying 23 jokes about snow. So do you take kind of a cynical view of his decision to star in this? Like, do you think that he just decided to do it purely as kind of a paycheck sort of dealio for him? Not at all. Again, I think for everybody involved, you look at it on paper, you think this is like the hottest yeah. uh, franchise. There's a ton of $125 million Big the guy who did Flatliners and Falling Down, although I love those movies, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uma's on board, George's on board. You're gonna give. I don't me think tw- he cared about George yeah. at that point in time. You're, 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 not you're, not you're, then. You're gonna He's give like, me Chris t- O'Donnell's on board. Yeah, you're gonna give me twenty five million. <laughs> Alicia Silverstone's yeah. on board. You know, it, and it looks just so so great on paper. I mean, it, it's the kind of project. How could you say no to really? And you can't yeah. really blame the people who are in the movie for how it turned out. I don't think. Well, and Joel Schumacher talks a lot about how. He always gets his first picks with his movies. And I think if you watch any sort of documentary with him, he seems like the most likable man possible. Like, he just seems like the best. And so I completely buy that all these stars are just like, yeah, I will do your movie. And he said he went to Arnold. Arnold was his only pick for the movie. There was a lot of rumors at the time that Patrick Stewart was who they wanted. That's not true at all. Around the playground, that's what everyone was saying. He would have actually been a more accurate choice in terms of adapting the comics. Or the guy who played Powder. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> didn't like he, something bad happen with him i don't I know i can't remember but he, he turned into an electric wave <laughs> <laughs> he played electro later yeah. his feelings got hurt when a deer got shot <laughs> yeah. but yeah um he went to arnold and said i will not make this movie unless you do it you're the only person that can be mr freeze and arnold was you know i think joel schumacher knows how to work actors yeah <laughs> and he went to you know he went to uma thurman and said like i need the most beautiful woman in the world huh? and she was like I'm in. But yeah. so, uh, by the way, you're going to be next to Elle McPherson and yeah, yeah, yeah. Vandella. <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, sorry, Vandella. Like, uh, a Fox was yeah, in yeah. this uh, one. Of course, for some yeah. reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, Alicia Silverstone, too. Yeah. But as for Arnold, like, I feel bad for Arnold in the sense, like, I think when you look at what Tim Burton did with his villains, he just found ways to make them psychologically interesting. Yeah. And I think there is enough in theory, for Mr. Freeze to actually really work. They actually took a lot of this from an animated episode called, I think it was called The Heart of Ice, that uh, redid the entire Mr. Freeze origin story and did this whole, you know, uh, sick wife idea and all that sort of stuff. And it worked really well in that show. And I think there's enough there. I think they could have made this something. I think Arnold's, I mean, there's moments where he's like crying over like a little ice statue of his wife. Like, he's actually committing to it. He's not playing it as those moments is like stupid. I think there's enough there to make an interesting villain, but the movie does not give him a lot. Like you, you referenced, you know, the number of ice gags. The first like eight minutes is just him running around making gags and just, you know, having action movie moments. And it just feels like his only moments of actual character development come when he's sitting by himself or with his wife. Well, sure enough. Yeah. Guys, was the only reason Coolio was in this movie is because of his name. 
Oh my god, I never thought of that. Well, I didn't see Ice Cube or Ice Tea <laughs> or Snow. Vanilla Ice. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I walk back that statement, though. <laughs> Sorry. I never even thought about that, Tony. <laughs> well, maybe he was the only one they could get. Yeah, Vanilla Ice was saying no. Yeah, he's like, no, I got Turtles 2 under my belt. <laughs> well, I feel like Ninja Turtles 2 is probably maybe a higher watermark for a lot of people than this was. Ooh. <laughs> it's not that good either. So why don't we just talk about some of our favorite moments? Like, Because this movie is just filled with bizarre moments. What I'm sure you guys have more than a few on your list. Yeah, um, George Clooney dresses like Trent Reznor the entire movie. Yeah, with like hoodies and stuff like that. <laughs> he's got like the uh, turtlenecks on nonstop. And if he's not wearing the turtleneck, he's got the black trench coat with yep. a black T-shirt underneath. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is so 90s. If you like want to point to a totally 90s movie, yeah. this is it to the nth degree. Yeah, it's like if a millionaire playboy shopped at Hot Topic. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of George Clooney as Bruce Wayne? I love George Clooney. I think he's one of my favorite actors. I don't buy him as Batman, though. I think mm -hmm. I, I could buy him as Bruce Wayne. Yeah. I can't really buy him as Batman. And it's something I, I don't know if it's just like this retroactive thing where I just look at Christian Bale as the definitive Batman. Sure. At this point. I don't know. What do you think of uh, his performance? I have really come around to his performance as Bruce Wayne. I actually think he's a fantastic Bruce Wayne. He actually, I think, gives off the kind of the playboy vibe of Bruce Wayne that I don't think they ever captured before in the other um, live action Batman movies from the Michael Keaton onwards. Like, I really buy George Clooney in that role. And I actually really enjoy the fact they make this story about him and Alfred a lot of it. Yeah. Because that's a relationship that I think has been underserved in the movies and how important Alfred is to his life. And when I see, like, George Clooney working with Michael Goff in this movie, I'm like, they are actually trying. Like, it seems like they're investing actual emotion in scenes in a movie that is absolutely insane. But didn't you find a lot of that emotion was wasted on bizarre camera angle choices, <laughs> lingering shots? Of, <laughs> yeah. uh, y y I don't know how to explain it. Like, having, having poor Michael Goff sit there in just, you know, an absolutely awkward camera angle and have the camera linger on him as he makes... Just well, no, weird, okay. weird faces. Uh, Would you feel that way though if the movie was working? Well, this is one of the reasons why the movie doesn't work. You know, and same thing. I got nothing against George Clooney. I think he's fantastic. He's a fantastic actor. And at the time, you know, he was primarily a television actor. He'd done Roseanne and was pretty hot on ER. Yeah. And but he had done some stuff. Uh, just, I think he had just uh, a couple years before had done From Dust Till Dawn, mm -hmm. which I loved and I thought really yeah. showed him as like uh, what he could do in a in a gritty, harder action type movie. And then he he comes along and he does this, which is like, I mean, obviously you're going to take it, George, but mm -hmm. it's a you know very high profile film. But I think he had the same issue as what Schwarzenegger had, which is it just the the moments that you'd think would be touching or important to explore the relationship with him and Alfred. I just didn't care that much. Maybe I'll get a little bit serious uh, on this. And uh, it's not a serious thing, but it's also not like a, a, a funny thing. But Joel Schumacher, he is a gay filmmaker. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of uh, homoeroticism going on throughout this movie. And I, I'm just curious about like what he was trying to imbue within Hollywood at the time. Because like you don't necessarily do that with, say, the client, mm -hmm. for example. But I think he 
sees like an opportunity here to uh, you know be subversive to a certain degree in in a way that Hollywood isn't used to, especially in like the mid '90s. Look, I, I mean, we could look at it and say, yeah, it's maybe a little bit over the top, but I, I still think it's like a very interesting kind of remnant of how you'd approach that sort of stuff in the 1990s. I think so, too, because one of the things I find intriguing about this movie, I don't think it works, but it's it's how Joel Schumacher tries to take the relationship with Batman and Robin, where you have these two, like, you know, as portrayed, they're supposed to be these very kind of like masculine crime fighting figures and how he kind of plays with their dynamic it just feels like a, a take on it that's slightly askew in a way that you would not see another filmmaker necessarily well, do robin's big dilemma is like he doesn't see this as an equal partnership right and yeah. maybe you can apply that to a marriage of some sort yeah, yeah. and I, I think that's a totally fair argument for them to be having i think the unfortunate part though is that robin comes off as a little bit narcissistic in yeah. that his demands for this partnership but i i still think that there's Maybe some subtext in there that, you know, that Joel Schumacher is trying to give the film that might go overlooked just kind of on a surface level. There's a lot of sexuality to their relationship in this movie, too, because a lot of it is like this kind of sexual competition for Poison Ivy yeah. that's played very strange. And I, I don't even know what to make of it in a kid's movie. It's It's something that I think is interesting. Like, I think you could definitely write interesting books or analysis of this movie in terms of what it's trying to say, especially within how, like, I remember there was an issue of Entertainment Weekly that came out in probably the same year this came out, and it was Entertainment Weekly putting out an issue that was called the Gay 90s. It was about how gay culture had entered pop culture that decade, and they were had this whole montage, you know, collage, I should say, over the entire cover of all these shots of various things, of you know, gay characters in TV over the years. And Batman and Robin, from this movie, this exact, this exact movie, were together on that cover. And I think it's interesting in that, you know, I think the, the the cheesy way to point at that is be like, well, look at the suits and all, you know, the giant cod pieces and all that. And mm -hmm. I think that just tied into the camp factor. But there is something about the relationship here that it, there's definitely like an intimacy in the way it's portrayed that you would not see, I think, in a different movie. Like had Christopher Nolan done Batman and Robin actually together, you know, because Robin is not really with Batman in, in Dark Knight Rises. But, with uh, Jordan uh, or Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, 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 yeah. But had he done the proper Batman and Robin, like I don't think it would have been like this. Yeah. It's just the way that Joel Schumacher sees their relationship I find very interesting. I love you, Robin. <laughs> I love you, Batman. <laughs> that would have been it. Uh, were you guys disappointed at all that we didn't get like a real Nightwing sort of tangential story at some point there we kinda, got the costume we, we, they kind of hinted at it when robin said hey i'm going on my own yeah you know I, but uh, yeah we, we've never really seen nightwing realize at least on the big screen i think he must have made an appearance somewhere on some of these cw shows that's oh yeah are so yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. yeah 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 i mean maybe I, it would not have shocked me if this movie had been a juggernaut if you would have gotten a nightwing movie out of this yeah, I could have seen them spinning that off because at a certain point it becomes a little ridiculous if Robin's like, you know, forty years old and he's well, still like Bruce. <laughs> well, here I don't want to go too far afield. Here I want to. Mm. Uh, we started with Arnold's performance and with George's performance. Uh, what did you think about the other performances in this movie? Well, let's talk about Poison Ivy, who's a character that I find very intriguing. Uh, it, it's a character I've come around more. I remember walking out of the theater like loathing that character. I just thought it, like this is a brutal character to sit through. I, I kind of admire Uma Thurman's commitment. I think she's taken a lot of direction from Joel Schumacher to heart, oh, yeah. and she is going for it 
full throttle. Mm-hmm. So props to her. And she it, said it was based on Mae West, okay, you know, the okay. classic film star. So yeah. I, I'll go for it. Like, I definitely think she is having a blast. And boy, you don't see actors commit like this usually in superhero movies. Like, you know, Tom Hardy comes out and does like his Bane voice and stuff like that. Or Heath Ledger I, I, lo- I loved him in this movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah. he, was this Tom Hardy's uh, first role in Hollywood? It's not that much worse than Venom. Um, <laughs> and there is Venom in this movie. But um, you see these like Tom Hardy performances or Heath Ledger villain performances. And people are like, look at how wild they go and how they just create this whole persona that's so different. And then they just like ridicule, for example, Uma Thurman in this movie. Tom Hardy's in Venom, and people love that, and that movie's terrible. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know know if it's a... Tom Hardy's pretty great in that movie. He is great. Although I think Uma Thurman's pretty memorable. I I, kind of dug her performance, because as over the top this movie was, Mm -hmm. she's riding the wave right along with it. She doesn't seem as if she's reluctant to do any of this stuff. It was entertaining. Well, she is in the Riddler role. Of this movie, and right. she is like the secondary villain, and the Catwoman role, and the Catwoman. She, yeah, but uh, for sure, but you know, and the Vicky role. She's the you know <laughs> she's the nerdy scientist who you know approaches Bruce Wayne, gets rebuffed, and then comes back as like a super villain who's green, and ends up being what becomes the brains of the entire operation, overtaking the villain who's introduced in the opening of the movie. It is. Uh, like template following Batman Forever. Yeah, what, I, what was the point of uh, Mister Freeze's incarceration in Arkham Asylum? Just to sh- just to show him being wheeled around in a fridge, pretty much. Okay. I mean, I'm glad you brought up Arkham Asylum because that's something I do like in this movie a lot. Is Joel the, Schumacher's like establishing shots of buildings? Say, the exterior shot of Arkham was just gorgeous. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Like it seems like a mixture of I believe he does have a theater background, so it's like a lot of that. As well as it feels like the universal horror stuff from like the 1930s. Mm-hmm. But he does the same thing with Dr. Woodrow's uh, lab as well, the establishing shot of that. But, I mean, yeah, Arkham, I absolutely love it. That's something we didn't get to see in the Tim Burton movies. And, I mean, I, I really did enjoy the Joel Schumacher. He didn't hold back on Arkham. He made it wacky. Yeah, for sure. It was definitely uh, a place for crazy villains. Yeah, and I do like the scene where it's Arnold in the cell, stripped out of the suit. Because we actually, I feel like a lot of time Arnold, and I know that he was dealing with health issues when he made this movie. He had gotten um, a bad uh, checkup and his heart was in trouble, and he had to have heart uh, surgery done. And so, like, I've often questioned how much he's in this movie, because they've talked about, one, Chris O'Donnell has said he never spent a single day working with Arnold Schwarzenegger making this movie. Although apparently they hung out offset quite a bit. Offset, sure. But they didn't had never shot a moment together on, you know, on stage. They uh You might say he has a heart of ice. <laughs> they also That's not not ice. <laughs> there's also a moment in the documentary on the Blu-ray where they talk about how they had a a body double for Arnold that was so good they couldn't tell the difference. Really? And you're like, "Oh, I get it yeah. because you're telling me Arnold, who I think walked away with an insane amount of money for this movie, twenty five million, twenty five million, yeah. I, I suspect there was a lot of days he didn't want to put out in that, in, you know, that entire suit and makeup job. Four hours of makeup, plus an extra hour if you're wearing a bald cap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he was like, I'll do the scenes where I'm wearing like the robe and slippers. or the scenes in Arkham where I'm just in like the prison outfit but I'll bet you most of the time when it's him in that big bulky suit he was like you know what Uh, I'll do the close-ups mind blown 
Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of like the Robert Downey uh, Jr. school, where it's like <laughs> the Iron Man suit at this point is just like shoulder pads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the and days a, of the full suit are long over. Robert Downey Jr. has got to be the smartest man in Hollywood right now. Like, yeah. Just think about the like, checks he's cashing based on the work he's doing behind a green screen. Yeah. Like, uh, what? Phones it in for about three, four days at yeah. this point. Like, just holding out for Benny in June, too. <laughs> <laughs> now, Alicia Silverstone got a ton of crap for this movie like she was run through the ringer over this movie i don't know if either of you remember it was very nasty stuff um and uh i can't say that people treated her well after the movie came out either what did you think you know all these years later removing all that baggage that excess baggage um what did you think of her performance in this movie before we go there i want to just correct myself Mm. Benny and June was Johnny Depp, okay. yeah, yeah, not yeah, Robert yeah. Downey Jr. Yeah, I always I often said get Chaplin. <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah. one I was thinking of. Right. Sorry, uh, Alicia yeah. Silverstone. Yeah. Um, I thought she didn't give a very good performance at all. Do you think she was stymied at all just by the script? I I, I don't think she was given uh, very good material to work with, though. Like I, I think it, was, it, it is a tough ask of her. I mean, I don't think the script helped anyone in this movie. Uh, I'm with you guys on Uma Thurman. I actually think she she does she gives it her all, and in some ways, it's a fantastic performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar to Arnold Schwarzenegger, actually, but just had such uh, clunky lines. I think like over fifty percent of her lines were just some sexual innuendo. You know, give some me of a, them were really far more extreme than yeah. I remembered. Give me a sign. How about slippery when wet? Yeah, that, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, Whereas I think the bat... Do you want to tend to my garden? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've tried to use some of those with, without much success. <laughs> the, um, the... I keep telling you, man, just back off me. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I think the bat crew, though, I think, uh, uh, including Alfred, yeah. Alfred, uh, Batman, Robin, and Batgirl, I think they had particularly bad scripts, and yeah. I thought... Uh, most of their performances were not that good to begin you want to be a villain if you're gonna be in one of these movies because i feel like you are getting at least to do whatever you want well yeah unless you're shy (laughs) i mean you know we talked clooney at the start but like yeah i think clooney's pretty lousy as batman he looks just kind of like he's a costume winner who's like shown up he's like yeah i guess i'm batman it doesn't feel like the dark knight in any way shape or form but like batgirl i think is tough and i feel bad for alicia silverstone she reminds me of you hear these stories about young actors who are pretty new in their careers who wind up on these mega blockbusters and are just lost. I feel like she is lost in this movie. Was she still a teenager when this movie was made? Probably in her early 20s, but, you know, still pretty young. And, you know, you look at the movie she's done. She's done, like, Clueless and Excess Baggage. I mean, these are not high-budget, major-set movies. And, like, Joel Schumacher, you know, there were stories about how the sets were just like parties. It was like thousands of people, and they said they had massive amounts of visitors every day. And they were just like always just teeming with people. Mostly there for Arnold Schwarzenegger. (laughs) Well, I'm sure he had an entourage, but, you know, it was like they would be like, why are you here? And they'd be like, we just got to see the sets. Everyone just wanted to see the sets. So people were always just touring this set all the time they were filming. And Clooney was running around doing pranks. Like it was just like the place to hang out. But I wonder how easy it is to focus and actually do a good job, especially if you're a young actress 
who's been dropped into this and, chaos. Well, I think you use the word drop, which is yeah. you know, perfectly apt. You don't know what's what in mm-hmm. like your day-to-day job at that point. And yeah. So for her, she's like, wait, is this really just par for the course? Like, I don't know. Yeah. And, and I don't that, think Schumacher is an actor's director, at least on these productions. But, well, you say that, but he was good at... I guess convincing a lot of actors to go for it, though. Yeah, you know, so maybe in, he in flatliners. <laughs> Just lie down, close yeah. your eyes. <laughs> that that's about the best acting that I could perform yeah. personally. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think that Batgirl struggles though in the sense like they don't have a fun angle on that character. Yeah, can yeah. you can you in uh, a few short words describe like what is. Batgirl's character. She's a computer genius who rides motorcycles. And yeah. her parents died in a horrible car accident, which is why she needs to ride on a motorcycle. And she does not support the butler profession. No, no, she does not. <laughs> Indentured yeah. servitude is how yeah. she thinks of it. Now, is all of that a compelling character in a Batman movie? I, I you know, this is such a busy movie. Yeah. I just, and I, I think what they wanted to do, and I, I'm not going to fault Hollywood for trying to bring diversity here but they're they're trying to bring more diversity within this franchise there's just so much going on yeah they should have if they want to do batgirl cut one of the villains yeah and just have Bane. a single <laughs> have a single villain <laughs> cut villain <laughs> have a single villain like the original batman and have batgirl and work far more with the dynamic of the bat family because yeah. You know, the famously that fr- that early Batman franchise always gave the majority of the screen time to the villains, and so when you're doing that, but you have a Bat family of four characters all going through separate stories, that's not going to work out very well. Although I did I did enjoy how they established that she's uh, uh, Alfred's niece. Yeah, which is uh, different than the comics where it's Gordon's daughter. Who who has just come in from England where she was uh, studying at Oxbridge Academy before she got kicked out. I like how she traveled from England. To Wayne Manor wearing her school uniform, <laughs> and then Wait, showed up, and then showed up speaking in an American accent. Well, maybe they moved there. <laughs> maybe she was, you know, Christopher Nolan was, I believe, born in Chicago, but he speaks with a British accent. That's true. And where wasn't his brother Jonah Nolan like born in London, and he speaks with an American accent? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So I don't. I, I'll give it a pass. But I mean. We should talk about the action because, of course, this is an Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast. Action is a big part of what makes these movies work. How did you think the action worked in this movie? Was there any set pieces or anything that you found interesting or fun? Or was yeah. it very clunky? The, the entire climax at the ice cream factory. <laughs> That's what I've always envisioned Like these uh, high-budget action hero movies should take place. Look, I'll go back to my initial feelings when the movie kicked off. I wasn't bored during this opening action sequence. Like, as not so as it was i was engaged i could actually follow along with the action which is something that i have a tough time doing nowadays with films like i just have no clue what's going on every single action beat that i saw here i knew what was going on i could follow along with everything i think mediocre action movies of like the 80s and 90s have benefited hugely from the shaky cam craze where like so many action movies nowadays especially with directors that aren't great look terrible and so you look back at something like this, which is borderline competent, and you go, I can tell what's happening. Yeah, It actually somewhat works. I was going to say, this is kind of the opposite. This is oh. a great director with terrible action. You think a great director? I think Joel Schumacher's... Uh, he's hit or miss. He can be good. Yeah, but, oh, okay. I, I think he's a very, very good director, mm-hmm. uh, um, generally. But, um, I mean, I, I found the action here to be... It just It's just so boring. Right, like uh, 
the wire work is it doesn't work at all for me. It looks so stupid and fake. Right. Uh, the the heavy use of really bad CG that kind of mm-hmm. um, uh, you know our, our, one of our favorite references on Arnie Geddon is Carnosaur. Right. Uh, it, it had a very Carnosaur type look to it, just like that low grade CG that has no business being in a movie post Jurassic Park, especially sure. one of this budget, and then. So many green screen shots that looked like someone was just holding a paper cutout of the character in front of a Sony Trinitron and, and moving it across. And it just, the, I found the action, it, you're right, you could follow it. Um, but just because you can follow something doesn't mean it's good. I, I, I found it to be not very fun to watch did, at all. Did you keep asking yourself, you know, what are the stakes here? Like, why should I care what happens? It, like, was it almost like just watching like kind of a magic show to a certain degree? A little bit. It was, like, it was more like watching. It was like watching a kids' show, yeah. you know. Right. Like, as as an adult, you just don't care. You know what's gonna happen, um, and it it just Dora's gonna explore. It didn't work. I mean, I lo- I actually really loved a lot of the sets. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, they oh, yeah. look great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can see why all those visitors were showing up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, but it did like the sets did look a little bit more like a cool rave party mm-hmm. than a convincing ice palace that sure. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but as far as like the actual fighting in the sets, you can only handle. Uh, there was one scene in the movie that really stuck out where there's a vine, I think, that is just hanging loosely, and mm-hmm. and George Clooney yeah. just just grabs the vine isn't even hanging off of anything. Doesn't Mister Freeze do that? I think it's Mister Freeze. Well, that's one of the characters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, just grabs onto it, and then the vine just swings him up to a higher ledge. Um, right. And. It just, I mean, I understand it's supposed to be campy. Physics don't really apply. Sure. But it's just so jarringly in your face, improbable and unlikely in really low impact, low stakes action. I I didn't enjoy it at all. It's funny in that, like, I appreciate, as you said, Tyler, like, when a character throws a punch and hits another character, I understand what happened. Like, it's actually conveyed in a way that I think I go, okay. I get this. Like, I don't think Joel Schumacher is bad at framing shots. I think he has some, you know, fun little ideas, like the one where, like, Batman punches someone through, like, a plate or something. I don't know what it was. It's like a round object of some sort. Like, I think it was the guy carrying around, like, champagne flutes. Something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I guess it's the tray, right? Um, But but when I actually think of, like, the sequences, I don't think any of the sequences work. Right. Like, you know, there's, like, the fight with, like, Robin and Bane. You know, where, like, Batman's jumping in and out and talking to Poison Ivy. Like, that scene, there's individual moments I think are kind of fun of, like, Bane tossing Robin around or something. But, like, or, the uh, sequence Robin isn't falling good. into the ice cream bat. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's fun little moments. But, like, the sequence is very kind of, like, sluggish. Or, you know, the the opening fight with Mr. Freeze and his men on skates. Like, again, there's nice little moments. But it feels kind of weighed down by the just maybe the size of the production. And I found that way, too. It wasn't just the, the fist fights or the mm-hmm. the one-on-one battles. You look at some of the vehicle combat that yeah. they had. It looked like they were... It, it was two parade floats in a battle. <laughs> was a single one of the actors in those vehicles? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> was that... it really Chris O'Donnell almost sliding off a 1,200-meter like, ledge? Yeah. No. <laughs> and then standing and screaming <laughs> at the sky <laughs> as Batman takes off? Yeah. I think maybe the motorcycle chase with Robin and and, um, and Batgirl, before she's Batgirl, but Barbara, yeah. 
I think maybe is the best shot in terms of feeling like something. Like it was like a low rent pod race. Yeah, it was. And I believe that was Nikki Cat was the one who was like picking really? a fight with her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's okay. in two Batman movies, yeah. Wow, okay. But um yeah, like I feel like that's maybe the best or the most effective one. But when I think of ones like say like, you know, Robin and Batgirl versus Bane, like that's pretty badly done, or that scene at the end with Batman and Mr. Freeze and like the scientists hanging on the um you know the microscope like that's really bad too the scientists uh i mean i can't remember their names yeah. actors, but they were in i know they were both in falling down at least one of them was in flatliners okay. as well so i think they've got the schumacher connection i was wondering why they were featured so prominently in the film yeah no, to me this is a moment of like as you said sets and kind of visuals as opposed to the action scenes yeah i'm actually glad you brought up that motorcycle mm-hmm. race as well because uh i mean that's another one i I actually couldn't follow it at all. It was a classic Hollywood thing where, yeah. uh, you know, let's do a few close-up shots of the ac- actual actors uh, talking to each other and then put on motorcycle helmets and, right. and have, you know, I, I didn't know who was in first for the whole motorcycle race. <laughs> Although I, do, I did appreciate that at one point someone crashed their uh, motorcycle into uh, a barrel that was apparently just full of glitter. <laughs> I mean, that's how I drive around the city. Yeah. Do you really question a, a barrel of glitter when you've got like gangs hanging around that are like all neon? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people they they looked like uh, Darth like, Maul. They looked like <laughs> juggalos that worked at a highlighter factory. <laughs> and then of course you have like the Clockwork Orange characters walking around, <laughs> and like Joel Schumacher's depictions of gangs is fascinating to me. If we're talking about questionable depictions, though, uh, let's go back to one of the opening parties that we saw here which i think is worth bringing up where it's this jungle theme which the set itself is beautiful it is but the depiction (laughs) of what's going on there and and let's be honest it it, it's uh people of uh say african descent yeah uh jumping around in uh, just a way that should have been cringeworthy at the time i don't know how even the 1990s something like this gets yeah. through the studio like i i think we all all three of us looked at each other when this came on and we just had the biggest <laughs> wtf like there's uh, a lot of like oh boy yeah oh yeah. I, <laughs> I think this might be the most kind of appalling out of date yeah sort of thing featured within this film for sure you will hear nothing but like fanboys be like the bad credit card and you know moments like that or the all the close-ups of like the butts or whatever but like that uh, that whole moment is to me what drags the movie out of just like oh this is really uncomfortable and yes and it but does not belong in this like my my skin was crawling although it did lead into the poison ivy monkey suit strip tease which i i really appreciate i mean it's amazing but yeah, uh, yeah. I, I agree with you guys that that charity auction left a lot to be desired. I'm also not a fan of Gossip Gertie, <laughs> no. the character played by Bob Kane's wife, who I'm sure she's a lovely woman. She seems very nice in interviews I've seen, but that character is just so grating. And I think she has like one scene in Batman Forever, which is fine. She got her one scene she's in like this three movie. Scenes or yeah, something. yeah, this is like a supporting character at this point. Well, she claims she's best friends with Bruce Wayne. I'm yeah, just like, really. This is a bit of a character change too. Uh, you know, while we're on the subject of that charity auction, I wasn't really aware that Batman and Robin were in the business of showing up and handing out prizes at at auctions shouldn't they be out fighting crime or something that's so adam west though 
they right, would just like right. show up and hang out in like local <laughs> neighborhood like parties. Yeah, do you picture say the Christian Bale version uh doing something like this? <laughs> no. There's actually an amazing moment that became really funny to me far later down the road, not at the time, but in Batman Forever. The moment where they have Two-Face, you know, the origin footage where you see Tommy Lee Jones, you know, the acid thrown in his face, it cuts to Val Kilmer Batman in a full bat suit, like going, no, in the courtroom. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it's so it's weird. Like, how did that happen? It's weird to me that once again, like in this movie, you see them taking that from uh, Batman Forever as well, where it's like the villain origin explained in news footage, where that was another bad laugh we all had was like Arnie falling in the antifreeze or whatever and going the. Well, speaking of his origin, he starts off as Dr. Victor Freeze. Yeah, it's F R I E S. Why does he start going by Mr. if he's a doctor? Well, hmm. Maybe you just want to be a little less formal. I mean, it can uh, okay. be. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he didn't want to give away who he truly was. Yeah, uh, maybe he Tyler. Maybe, you know, despite his research, he wasn't a. A medical doctor. Maybe he was like, maybe he had a PhD in history or something mm, like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to know what Arnold thinks of this movie because I have no sense. I actually flipped through his total recall autobiography and this movie pops up on, I think, something like 10 different pages. Uh-huh. And it's mostly just like, I bought a plane at this point in time <laughs> while I was filming this movie. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, okay. He never once gives any stories about shooting the movie he never talks about what he thought of the movie he just talks about obviously his heart condition buying planes um doing the press tour and it's just so weird and that this is a movie that i think looms very large in the later section of the 90s for him and when you look at arnold's career it really starts to dry up in a lot of ways as like a, a major on-screen presence uh, like a big you know blockbuster guy and this is one of his last hurrahs, really. It really is, yeah. Well, this would have been, what, right after Eraser, right? Yeah. Yeah. And right before... Uh, end of Days. Oh, yeah. That was 99, right? Yeah. He took a year off, I believe. Yeah, yeah that's true. The I remember it was days, a big it's... deal that he oh, took oh, a year oh, off. Oh, maybe, yeah. maybe we should look it up. Where was Jingle All the Way? 96. So was it after Jingle All the Way or Eraser? After. Yeah, I think Eraser was 95. No, Racers ninety six, and okay. then Jingle All the Way came out that Christmas in November oh, um, of okay, ninety six. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess technically it was after Jingle All the Way, but I mean Eraser, and we talked about this a little He's bit. Keeping the snow theme going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this was something we talked a little bit ab- about on our Eraser podcast. Uh, this is at the point where Arnold was maybe still pumping out movies that had good budgets and good names attached to yeah. them. But it was around the time where you started to see some declines er- in in his productions. Yeah, like Eraser wasn't like a phenomenon. I don't think people were super excited for it. And, you know, if you think about it, when he signs onto this movie, this seems probably like a sure thing. And something that could probably be a shot in the arm for him as like someone who could once again get the you know normal standing that he's used to in these big productions because i have to feel like for arnold at this point in time he's confused the movies that he's known for making are completely fading out of relevance and he's seeing movies like this making huge amounts of money (laughs) yeah sure but he's seeing movies like this or you know this same summer like men in black is a massive hit and he must be looking at these going like, these aren't my thing. Although this is only three years after True Lies, though. It's true. And that Lies. That, that movie made a lot of money. <laughs> it did. But, you know, this would kind of be Arnold's last big hurrah until you really get 
the next big blockbuster is Terminator uh, 3. And so it's kind of weird. How much did he make for Terminator 3? I think I, we, we, we went over it on the podcast. If I, if I remember, it was about uh, 30 million plus uh, points. Like, like, yeah, lot of, plus points? Yeah, like percentage points. I, oh, I thought you meant like end. airline points. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of money. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's kind of a bad note to go out in terms of kind of ending the 90s for Arnold. Because I don't think people look at end of days as being like, oh, yeah, that was the end of the decade for Arnold. I don't yeah. think people remember that movie that well. I remember uh, End of Days was a big deal when I was in high school. We all went and saw it, and then I looked at the box office. I think it made like $3 million opening weekend, and I, my friends and I just kind of promptly forgot about that. Well, we, have, we yeah. haven't done End of Days yet, Tyler, so if you, if you want to come back on... <laughs> oh, I'm down anytime, guys. Believe me. I, I got a question for you guys. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know the answer to this off offhand, um, but just talking about Arnold's career and how it progressed... And and we have talked about this before on the podcast, but is this the last movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger cries in before Maggie? I think I, I, I'd i have to rewatch End of Days because I know his character was very depressed in that. Maybe he cries in that. What about the I sixth, don't know. sixth day? Maybe Not Aftermath? Sixth day. The Aftermath for sure. But um, it might be. Yeah. It might be. We'll have to review that. We we should have yeah. we should have picked up a when does Arnold cry theme uh in our we'll do uh, a, in our previous podcast. One day we'll do a ranking the Arnold crying scenes episode. <laughs> That's actually a great a great <laughs> idea. Talk about what he we're go- we're going to run out of movies eventually and then we're going to be scraping the bottom of the barrel for uh uh ideas, you know. What was Arnold's favorite coat? Now, this was Arnold's only villain performance so far in his career. Is this a missed opportunity? Should we be seeing Arnold more as a villain? No, like I, I think Arnold works best as a hero, not necessarily a relatable hero, mm-hmm. but as a villain, I don't think he quite—he doesn't seem sinister enough, right? And I think that's kind of the problem. Like I, I kind of find him lovable in the end, right? No matter all the horrific things that he committed within this. Although that final scene he has with Poison Ivy is really unsettling. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what I should read into that. Why would Arkham put? Like Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy in one cell like together. Like a, a male and a female in a single cell. Yeah. I, I feel like yeah. uh, Arkham Asylum is maybe not uh, the best place to advance your uh, prisoner's rights bill. Mm. Yeah. No, no. Now, you know, this movie, of course, as we said at the top, didn't do great. But there were plans for a fifth one. Okay. And I remember the rumors at the time were all abuzz that this movie was going to be called Batman Triumphant. Yeah. And that they wanted Kurt Russell to be Batman. Really? Not the case. Not the case at all. So was he supposed to be playing like an older Batman at this time, I or like have a no contemporary? Idea. You see, the thing is, back in those days, we were getting our like movie news from like the newspaper, yeah, and they could print anything. And you're like, oh, okay, well, there you have it. Was it like uh, Jeff Goldblum rumored to be like Scarecrow? I'm glad you brought that oh, up. Okay, sorry. Okay, so that was the other rumor going around that the villain would be the Scarecrow. At that point, they were running out. Let's be honest, uh, they were burning through them like nobody's business. Um, and so, yeah, the Scarecrow was going to be the villain, and the rumors were that you would hear would be Jeff Goldblum was one, Howard Stern was another, because oh, yeah, Private right. Parts had been a big hit, yeah, yeah. or at least a modest-sized hit, and he was, he was the king of all media at that point. And it's not like these movies are an actor's challenge, I think, at this point, <laughs> so it wouldn't have been necessarily <laughs> too much for him to take on the Scarecrow. But none of this is true. Um, the the project, it was called Batman Unchained, was the name of the script. And it was written by uh, Mark Protosevich. It was later done by Quentin Tarantino. 
<laughs> Mark Br- <laughs> but the character of Batman yeah. changed to yeah. Django. <laughs> but yes, you know Schumacher was going to come back. He has said George Clooney would have been back. So the, uh-huh. the Batman recasting, I don't know where that came from. Uh, and he has said he always gets his first choice. He had gone to one actor who'd agreed to play the Scarecrow, and that actor was Nicolas Cage. Interesting. Interesting. And the other villain would have been Harley Quinn, who would be more of like a Joker cultist, someone who worships the idea of the Joker. Mm-hmm. And the movie would have used the uh, Scarecrow's fear gas to give Batman hallucinations of all his former villains. And Joel Schumacher said this was going to be the movie where he would kind of tie the Tim Burton canon to his own. And he was going to try and get Danny DeVito and Jack Nicholson back for hallucination appearances as the villains. He wanted Michelle Pfeiffer back. And so it's like, hearing all that, do you kind of wish this movie had happened? It makes me think, uh, spoiler alert for people that haven't watched the entire run of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which ended 15 years ago, but Mm -hmm. it reminds me very much of who the final big bad was in season seven of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. And I think it worked in Buffy. Uh, Season seven wasn't great, but Mm -hmm. I could have totally bought into them trying to tie this universe all together, make it some sort of cohesive thing. Mm Mm-hmm. I would have loved to have seen this. I don't know if... Buffy the Vampire Slayer Season (laughs) 7? I think I've probably once watched an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so I'm afraid I can't comment Mm. on that. But, uh, I mean, obviously I would love to see all of those characters in one movie. Yeah. I don't know. I I wasn't a big fan of Batman Forever, and I really don't care at all for Batman and Robin, Mm -hmm. Uh, although I do like parts of it. I don't know if, if I want a Joel Schumacher reunion uh, movie right yeah and the interesting thing was they said batgirl was not in that script so it's like even at the time they were like that didn't really work mm, which okay. is odd but yeah i think if you would have shown me that movie back in those days i would have just been so happy just to see like the danny devito penguin show up like yeah. that would have been enough for me i think i would have walked out and even if i didn't like the movie i'd be like that was enough i enjoyed those elements of it and i mean nicholas cage you know he would have done something oh yeah so any final thoughts on batman and robin i think this is totally worth a rewatch like for those that might be a little bit reluctant i go in it just think of it more and and i don't want to disparage the movie but think of it more as a an experience ripe for comedy yeah versus like a serious endeavor into the psyche of a, a dark dark character like batman although it does have that weird dark moment where like batman takes out mr freeze and then it just, like, does this weird cut to, like, Batman, like, hatching yes. <laughs> Mr. Freeze underneath him, which uh, feels, like, almost like a dark moment. Well, you know, they say, you know, uh, for films, you want to feel as if you come into a scene, like, yeah. late and you leave early. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's just his whole <laughs> editing technique throughout yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. Tony? Well, I mean, there's a couple things I think that are worth mentioning, at least before we go. Uh, I agree with you, Tyler. Um, as much as I don't like this movie... It is kind of fun. Uh, it's it's the kind of movie that would be fun to have, uh, you know, people knocking back some drinks and yelling obscenities at it throughout. Uh, it's it's right. it's not really like a Schindler's List type film where someone talks and you're like, <laughs> sure. shh, shh, like he's saving the girl in the red. You coat. mean Ra's al Ghul? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> of course. Um, 
there's there was a couple things that I thought we were going to touch on. Mm. Uh, the Alfred Max Headroom scene where he has upla- oh, uploaded okay. his I'm psyche, glad you brought that up. psyche into the uh, Bat Cave. Yeah, uh, I wish he'd had like kind of that digital stutter that Max Headroom had. He kind of he did yeah, he not did. not yeah. as much though. I want the full bore one. <laughs> I think they were totally going for Max Headroom oh, in yeah, that yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean that that scene. I really enjoyed that. I thought that was a little touch of lunacy that I I actually really appreciated. But otherwise, no, I I, I don't think there's much more to say about yeah. Batman and Robin. Uh, definitely, if you haven't seen it in a while and you didn't, you know, shamefully did not watch it uh, before listening to this podcast, by all means, go and do it. It's not a boring movie. It's just just a really bad one. You say it's like a good one to watch with your friends. You guys can kind of crack jokes next to each other and laugh along with it. Is that at least worth the two hours that uh, you put into it? Yeah, for sure. If you're an assistant professor at some community college going for your tenure, maybe don't assign it in your film class, though. <laughs> no, I think they should, actually, as to what not to do in maybe some of these storytelling uh, techniques that it used. I think you could get something out of that. Yeah. But one thing we haven't done yet, though, uh, before we leave, oh, it, yes, leave of off course. there, is normally on this on this podcast, we do a little bit called Spots Fen. I we're... saw Jesse Ventura. <laughs> yeah, we saw Jesse Ventura, which I had totally forgotten that he mm-hmm. was in this movie. But Spots Fen, where Sven Ole Thorsen, which is one of Schwarzenegger's most frequent collaborators. He's been in more Schwarzenegger films than anyone except Arnold Schwarzenegger. And we keep an eye out for him because he's in he's in a lot. He's a very distinctive looking guy. Um I don't know. I didn't see him in this movie, although he is listed in, okay. in the cast and crew as as being one of the stuntmen. But this is a case we did jingle all the way a little while ago, and it was a similar thing. Mm-hmm. We figured he was probably a, a background Santa in that, and in this one he was probably just you know some goon being thrown over a railing or something like that. Maybe in one of the gorilla suits. Yeah, that's certainly possible. <laughs> yeah. You would never recognize him though if he was like one of Mister Freeze's goons. No, there's no, no way you ever would. So no. I can totally buy that. Yeah. So he was in there, but we didn't spot him. If you guys spot him, by all means, uh, yeah. send us a note and let us know. Sven, send us a note. Yeah, Sven, <laughs> let us know where you were. <laughs> yeah, this is a movie that, like, there was a lot of, like, things that, that made me angry about it back in the day. Like, I always hated Elliot Goldenthal's score for this movie. I hated the Batmobile redesign. I hated the costumes and all that stuff. But that stuff's all faded away for me. I've entered this kind of zen-like state with this movie where, like, I just accept it as is. Yeah. And I think, you know, it is such a pure vision of Joel Schumacher. Even though he says it was corrupted by the toy companies, I still have questions about that. Um, but I, I feel like this movie, there's a reason we still talk about it. There have been tons of terrible movies. I'm sure if you go back and look at... Because you know, it's on multiple <laughs> worst movies ever made lists? Sure, but like go back to 1997 and like, I, you know, I saw Call the Conqueror. It was terrible. And I mean... No one remembers Call the Conqueror, right. but they all remember Batman and Robin. I think people revisit this movie far more than they want to admit. I'll bet you a lot of the fans who you know love to get online and rail against this movie still watch it. I think there is a certain legacy about it that makes it interesting. If this movie were completely boring, no one would remember it. But that's kind of going back to what I was saying right from the start. Like, there's something a little bit magical about this. Where or mad. Or mad. And that's just it. Like, Joel Schumacher didn't want to make a dull movie. He was very bold. I don't think it necessarily worked, but I like I, I can't imagine at any point being bored when we watch this at all, though. And I'd like to point out that necromancy is a type of magic. 
Fair enough. Uh, okay, that's true. <laughs> okay. So Not I... all magic is good. <laughs> okay, so I think that wraps up Batman and Robin. Okay, so Tony, what are we doing next time? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. We're going to try a little bit of a special episode next time, Cam. Uh, Andy Vina, uh, who, uh, and I, ho- I hope I'm saying his name right, he's a, a Hungarian-American film producer who produced quite a few Schwarzenegger films, as well as a lot of uh, the more, uh, a, lo- a lot of seminal action films of the 80s and 90s. Uh, so some of the Schwarzenegger films he did, he did Red Heat, he did Total Recall, Terminator 3, and others. Uh, He recently died, very sadly, uh, on January 20th. So we're going to be doing a little bit of a a retrospective and looking back at his career and the influence that he has had on not only Schwarzenegger movies, but the uh, action movie and Hollywood cinema generally. Okay, so you can also reach us at ArnieGuidenPod on Twitter or at ArnieGuidenPod at gmail.com. Of course, leave reviews for us on all your major podcast catching software. Now, Tony, how do they get hold of you? You can find me. Uh, I'm Tony G. Tony like the name, G like the letter, at ArnieGuiden.com. You can also find us on our website, direct from the source, www.ArnieGuiden.com. You can find me on Twitter at Cam V as in villain is Mr. Freeze Smith. Now, Tyler... What about you? Oh, yeah. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. N as in N Robin. And Tyler, where can they hear more of the two of us talking about Star Trek? You know, I would recommend that you go to Facebook.com slash Subspace Pod or just search for Subspace Transmissions in YouTube. We've got lots of videos. You can also find our audio files. Cam, we're doing lots of content. And for all those that are watching, say, Star Trek Discovery Season 2, you and I are going deep into that. We're having a lot of fun right now. But we're also doing, like, wacky stuff and just we're, we're tracking the constant evolution of this Picard spinoff for all those that are old school TNG fans. Awesome. It's a lot of fun, so check it out. And we'll be back with a tribute to Andrew G. Vanya. Yeah.